if you've caught up with what we're doing, we'll we we switch today. Uh, you were supposed to be hearing Martin Bonilla from Nicaragua this morning. Uh, they, I think, have just landed O'Hare. So um, they um, uh, had a flight that was to arrive at O'Hare last night at 10.30, but they got tripped up a little bit at Customs in Houston, missed the connecting flight to O'Hare and are coming in this morning. So since Kayla and I knew this was a possibility, I got my sermon ready for next Sunday and... Um, uh, it's 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 kind of together, so uh, we'll see what we can do. Um, uh, but it's on a, a pretty heavy topic, and I would have I would have let you know it was coming sooner than than, than now. But it's uh, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Uh, that term keeps changing. Uh, domestic violence isn't what it's all about. There's abuse and harassment are part of that. Another term used these days is intimate partner uh, violence as well. But um, I just want to kind of give that up front uh, for those uh, that uh, I didn't let you know in case your children are in the room. Uh, I will not be getting graphic, but we'll be reading some scriptures that speak of some graphic things. And um, I've really prayed also for sensitivity for those whom this touches your life too, that it would not... um, open up uh, deep wounds, but rather uh, bring the promise of of healing, uh, and healing that can happen right here in our own community as well. Um, I also bring uh, greetings this morning from my wife, Megan. She is, for the last few days, has been with a group. She pulls together all the different leaders of the conference women ministries for a time of learning together. And one of the things they've spent a lot of time, almost most of yesterday, was uh, in the area of AVA, which is a a ministry that Megan oversees, which stands for Advocates for uh, Victims of Abuse. And so um, she is very much in this this work, in this battle, and doing what we can to bring resources and healing to people in our churches. So uh, let's dive in. Hashtag me too. And because there's no slide, so you have to listen. Sorry, you can't look for this. Sorry sorry to all you visual people, but... uh, Hashtag Me Too. It's been quite a year and has been just about a year since things really stirred up. Uh, the rise of the Me Too movement has stirred up all kinds of reactions and responses and uh, stories being told and, of course, the inevitable backlash that happens in our culture when anything makes the news. We've seen the stunning disgrace and fall of several in the entertainment industry. A new light and a sense of shine in the reality of domestic violence, abuse, and assault in the lives of sports stars, politicians, and even White House staffers. And no matter your politics or who you believe, the historic confirmation hearings for Judge Brett Kavanaugh electrified and stirred up this conversation around harassment and assault in a powerful and ugly, ugly way. My reaction at the end of that day, I had was listening to it live streamed and watching the hearings, and all I felt was a deep sadness, a deep sadness for everyone involved, sad for our nation, and but especially sad for victims, victims for whom things were stirred up. And yes, we always have to say there are examples of false accusations, but statistics show that they're estimated, estimated to be only around 2% or slightly higher. Rarely, if ever, do false accusations result in a conviction when the reasons for a false accusation become clear. And here's something important, too. The estimated number of unreported real assaults is far higher than the number of false accusations. There's still a great deal of secrecy and silence and unreported assaults. I learned early in my role as pastor, always believe the victim first. 
You see, right here in this room and in our church family, some who aren't here today, I know, I know very well stories of childhood sexual assault, rape, abusive marriages, families where there has been all kinds of abuse, whether physical, verbal, emotional, emotional, sexual, and even situations of spiritual abuse. Yes, God told me to tell you can be the beginning of abusive words. I'm just talking about right here at Neighborville Covenant. I'm just talking about what I know, the limited stories that I know. Pastor Diana knows others that I don't know. And together we don't know everything. It's very real, and if it hasn't impacted you, it impacts someone you know. Estimated that one in four women, one in four women, have experienced some form of harassment, abuse, or assault. I know this is not a very cheery popular topic for a Sunday morning. But when we place domestic violence, abuse, and sexual assault, when we place it in the context of biblical justice and injustice, it becomes profoundly relevant to the church. You see, whenever anybody is oppressed or hurt or abused, the image of God, or what we call the imago Dei, is damaged in that person. Scripture repeatedly speaks of oppression and overpowering of others as something to be condemned and avoided. The prophets constantly spoke about the oppression of people. And when we place the destruction of relationships and fear alongside the healthy, reconciled relationships the Bible calls us to, when we place the destruction of relationships along what Scripture calls us to do as people is extremely relevant and timely. At all times, especially in this day of Me Too and a culture that reacts and responds but does not always act and respond in line with what the Word of God and the Spirit of God would call the church to. To remind us that the first place that we learn and experience love, genuine love, is in our homes and in our families. We, we learn its warmth. We learn security and acceptance and encouragement of love in our families. We learn love's patience. We learn that forgiveness is part of love. We also, in family, learn love's challenges. In a majority of families, it works. There's no perfect families, but usually love is the overarching theme. But in other marriages and families, there is sometimes a dark side, a, a silent reality, secrets. Secrets from the past or sometimes even in the current reality, a, an imbalance of power. Somebody is more in control than another and it leads to hurt and sometimes even violence. For most of us, the challenges that we face in family love is that we have to let go of self-centeredness. We all, that's what pulls us away from loving fully. To let go of self-centeredness and grow into the love that God has extended to us, we need reminders to be strengthened in our families with the love of Christ, most of us. But as I mentioned in my introduction, there are individuals and families in our midst and definitely in our community today who are hurting deeply. And people are even being hurt by what we call domestic violence intimate partner violence and abuse. It may or may not even involve physical violence, uh, but it can always involve power and control. It always involves power and control and abuse, and they come in these different forms of withholding things, of controlling information and access. It can be a psychological abuse, which sometimes is actually experienced as worse than being hit. And yes, even spiritual abuse, as I mentioned. 
and the rest of us can't ignore it that it's happening. We need to be offering hope and health in a place of hurt. So this is the this is kind of the point I want to make today. That as followers of Christ, we need to not only strengthen our relationships, our families with the life changing love of Christ, but we also need to be ready to offer hope and healing to those impacted by the deep hurt of domestic violence and abuse. I want to look at a story from the Bible, and actually, Megan, my wife Megan, preached on this uh, a couple years ago in domestic violence awareness, and I'm going to read it again and take another look at this. It's the story of Tamar. There's two Tamars in Scripture. This is the Tamar who was a daughter of King David. This is in 2 Samuel 13. David, just reminded before he entered, was the king over a united Israel, kind of Israel's favorite king in the line. Christ came through him. David, who was one who was called by God as one who was a man after God's own heart, and yet a man who also sinned deeply, and yet we read the deep repentance that he shares with us in Psalm 51. So David was forgiven, but he bore the scars of his mistakes and some of his family pain. To the extent that even though he was forgiven, it was said to him, I will cause your own house to rebel against you. And it starts in 2 Samuel 13. Let me read. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible that he could ever fulfill his love for her. Now, Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shimea. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of the king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are sick, and when your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she feeds you. So Amnon pretended to be sick, and when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, please let Tamar come to take care of me and cook something for me to eat. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went went, went to the room where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked some special bread for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took it to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. You know what a serious crime it is to do such a thing in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since she was stronger than she, since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate. And he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. To reject me now is greater wrong than you have already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hand, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, don't be so upset. Since he's your brother anyway, don't worry about it.
So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. When King David heard about what had happened, he was very angry, and though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about it, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. It's one of the ugliest stories in the pages of Scripture. Family pain and violence. Centuries old in an ancient culture so very different from our own, but with a frighteningly contemporary ring to it. You see, the sad signs of domestic violence are all here of power, control, deceit, anger, silence, and shame. They're all here in this story. Amnon is David's eldest son. He's heir to the throne. And Tamar is his half-sister. She is a full sister to Absalom. And he, he is here dominated by his lust. And it's making him sick even. Now, domestic violence is not always about sexual violence, but it is always about self-serving power and control. It's not just about uncontained lust. It's about power and control. It's not just a bad temper. It's not somebody who loses it from time to time. It's often a pattern. Now, we don't know much more about Amnon. We only have this story, but the results here are the same. Amnon overpowers Tamar. She stands up to him. She seems unintimidated. She states several good reasons not to have relations with him. And what does he do? Brute force, verse 14, 2 Samuel 13. Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since, she, since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Since he was stronger than she was. Some of the saddest words in scripture. Power, control, and deceit. He was obsessed. He used deceit. He had a friend and relative trick him into time with her. And he kicked the servants out. He lied to King David, his father. And the deceit persists afterwards as well. It's bad enough what happened. He could have repented and comforted her. But in anger, he turns on her. It says suddenly his, he began, his love turned to anger and he kicks her out. Get out of here. He snarled at her, the scriptures say, and he threw her out. Verbal, intimidating violence continues even after the act. Why does he turn so quickly? Is he feeling a deep conviction? conviction? Does he feel there's nothing more to con- con- conquer and no, no more thrill of the conquest? Was he maybe angry and trying to attempt to suggest that she was the aggressor? We don't know. It's often that confusing and irrational in situations of abuse and violence. And then the response. She mourns, she confides in her brother Absalom, and his response, well, don't be so upset. He's your brother anyway, don't worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. Maybe those are the saddest Words in scripture. Don't worry about it. I'm sure she said, oh good, thanks, I'm good now. Lived as a desolate woman, we assume the rest of her life. What Absalom's doing here is what we call minimizing. Minimizing the pain, minimizing the impact. Ignoring the hurt and trying to explain it away. How often in the last year have we heard that boys will be boys? And so she's left in silence, not to be addressed again. And even King David, when he hears it, is angry, but Scripture does not report him doing anything about it. He just got angry. And he moves on. She is desolate, alone, and left in fear and shame. 
Some things never change. Same with victims today. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's the church that minimizes and ignores and keeps the silence. If we don't speak of it, maybe it will go away. Maybe we can pretend it never happened. And there's deceit and lies. And the story for some women is they never share it, and that's an impact on their life. One of the things that Megan does in her role with Ava is, um, as she's taken over that role from Yvonne Devon, who did it for years, is to spend some time in residence in our, our uh, retirement communities. She spent a couple days at Northbrook a few weeks ago, and uh, in a couple weeks she'll be at uh, the homestead in Batavia for a couple days. And what happens those times, she'll speak about this, she'll do a training for advocates, and sometimes a woman in her 80s or 90s will come and break silence for the first time since she was a young woman. It's not that big a deal. Just tuck it away. The story goes on and actually results in more violence. I won't read it, but in 2 Samuel 13, 23-28 explains the deepening hurt and anger of Absalom who eventually has his half-brother Amnon murdered. He's so mad at him for doing this. And David's pain and hurt deepened further. One son killing another son fixes nothing. It only makes it worse. Nothing is made right and the family is damaged more and more. Can you see some parallels with David's own sin? His lust and control over Bathsheba and his son Amnon over his daughter Tamar. David's arranging for the murder of Uriah to get him out of the way and Absalom arranging for the murder of Amnon. Self-seeking, self-satisfying, self-justifying, but only creates hurt and pain for the family. Too many families today carry some sort of pain. It might even be from a generation or two or three before. If it hasn't been dealt with, if silence and secrets and shame find their way in. I'm going to turn the corner to hope here now. (laughs) The word to us as followers is to remember the power of Christ to heal and the power of a healthy love and respect in a family. You know, there's only a few passages in Scripture that really speak directly to families and uh, to speak of marriage and parenting. In fact, this morning in our discussion on Immerse, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13 that many of you heard at at weddings over and over and over again. It actually wasn't written for weddings. It was written to the church. (laughs) But uh, there aren't that many that are directly to marriage and parenting. But there are many more that speak to relationships in the family of God, the body of Christ. These teach us of the difference that Christ makes and can, can make in preventing family pain and violence, as well as giving us hope that healing and transformation can come in Christ. I'm not going to take time to read it now, but the third chapter of Colossians, you'll be reading Colossians this week if you're in uh, Immerse. I can't tell you which page it's on right now. I don't have my Immerse with me, but the hint, you've, you've noticed the little light, faint verse numbers up at the top of the page. You really can know where you are with verses and chapters, by the way. But the first 20 verses of Colossians chapter 3 are, are profound words about the transforming work of Christ for relationships. He talks about how we used to live. He talks about that, he uses that image of changing clothes. And he talks about in the, in the initial verses of the, the dirty garments of anger, rage, deceit, lust, greed, and taking those off. And we could also add to that list abuse of power, 
domination or control of others. Take those off, he says, and put on a new clothing of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and a willingness to make allowances for each other. What he's talking about here is not just how to be a better person, but he's talking about virtues that that God works within us and that Christ works within us as we go in Christ. That those virtues, this kind of life is for both sexes, for all ages. It's love and respect in marriage as equals. It's obedience and respect among parents and children. It's love and mutual respect within any relationship in Christ. How many know what Ephesians 5.21 says? (laughs) I'm going to read uh, something about transformed marriages here quickly before we bring it in for a landing. Ephesians 5.21 says this. This is actually a very misunderstood passage of Scripture. And further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You wives will submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for a husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of this body of the church. He gave his life to be her Savior, and you husbands must love your wives with the same love Christ showed the church. He gave his life for her. We get stuck on wives submitting to husbands when we don't realize that the whole context of it is a submission to one another and the way we live in Christ. Wives are called to a kind of submission. The husbands are called to another form of submission of loving their wives as Christ of the church. This text is actually written to couples as equals. First wives to husbands, then husbands to wives. This was, and this actually, though we struggle with it in our cultural context, was actually a radical in a culture where women were considered property. This was spoken in a context where the prohibition of divorce was directed to men who could do so as easily as writing uh, a note on, as, uh, about getting rid of a piece of property. Writing a note and getting rid of a piece of property. And that right was not given to women who were owned, abused, and were considered as common property. This text of mutual submission was absolutely transforming. And it guides us to a covenant of mutual love and respect for Christian marriage today where there's absolutely no room for overpowering, there's no room for control, there's no room for dominance, there's no room for abuse or violence. And I'm sad to say that too many women have been told to stay in an abusive, life-threatening situation with a misapplication of this text. Well, you're supposed to submit to your husband. Tragic, the abuse of Scripture in that case. I believe the covenant of marriage is broken by abuse and violence. These texts in Colossians and Ephesians and elsewhere, particularly in the letters of Paul, give us guidelines and standards for healthy relationships, but they also help us see where those guidelines are being ignored and people are being hurt, and it's usually women and children. As a church, we're called to be a healing community to take action. We're the body of Christ. We are a place, a church is a place to be saved and safe. And if, we are, and if there are those in our midst who are being hurt, we need to be used by God to bring healing. We need to be aware. It's a cur- we need to be aware if it's a current issue or even of a long-time impact. We need to be aware that it happens. It's happening now or it did. Some of you are very familiar with domestic violence or you know somebody whose life has been impacted by it. And we need to be aware that it's for real, not just because it's a social problem, but because it is a biblical justice issue and it harms people God's loves. When someone is being oppressed, when someone is being held back, when somebody is being overpowered by another person, that's what the Bible calls injustice. It's pretty clear. We need to be willing to break silence. 
Another phrase that's become popular in the recent years in our culture is see something, say something, and it holds for us within the church as well. It's real and we can't pretend that it isn't around here. We need to be ready to help those who are trapped in silence and shame and find a voice in a safe and helpful way. We need to speak of it more often. often. And we we need to support, we need to offer comfort, support, and resources to people who are stuck in harmful situations. Ava trains advocates. We did a training here several years ago. Uh, Melissa and Megan are up to speed in terms of their advocacy. They've been trained and many in the soul. They can help us find resources. We can educate ourselves. You can simply go to covchurch.org slash abuse. C-O-V-C-H-U-R-C-H dot org slash abuse. And there's pages of resources available. You might find some even better sermons about it than I'm trying to deliver right now because it is being addressed in our churches. And finally, um, we need to be watching ourselves and modeling and living Christ's way ourselves. We need to be aware of how we build strong marriages and not let our marriages come to that point where, well, it's working fine. We need to be sure that we're keeping our covenant of marriage and where it's not being uh, damaged or, 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 or betrayed. We need to be encouraging each other in healthy families where each one is respected and children's listened to and women have an equal role. We need to be helping our young people be alert too. We need to be equipping our young people for the world in which they live where there's temptations, challenges, and threat of harassment and assault. We also need to stave off the potential for abuse. If a young person is tracking their boyfriend or girlfriend constantly on a phone, texting for where they are and who they're with, those are the early signs of control and abuse. It may sound like a simple just checking up on you, of one spouse checking the bank account constantly to see where he or she is spending money is control unless it's talked about and dealt with. We need to be aware of the earliest seeds of it and where they get planted in our relationship. We as a church need to be more faithful in offering not only prayer meetings, but healing prayer and healing relationships and acceptance of those who have been hurt and to believe people, to believe people when they say they've been hurt and to not minimize. And even to the abusers in our midst, we need to offer hope for forgiveness and restoration and transformation, because that's what Jesus does. As followers of Christ, we need to constantly be vigilant, strengthening our families with a life-changing love of Christ. But we need to be ready to listen, to offer hope and healing to those whose lives are impacted with a deep hurt of violence and abuse as well. You probably know somebody or know of somebody and you might be the one that can offer the help to them. So again, I would encourage you, whoever you feel safest approaching to me, Pastor Diana, Melissa, Megan, when she's around, we're available to talk, to pray with you. If you're concerned about somebody you know, saying, I'm feeling really uncomfortable, we, we have resources to offer as well that we can play a role of healing agents uh, in the power of Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, this is hard stuff. I, I needed another week to develop this better, but I pray, Lord, that what I've shared will not open ugly wounds, but rather lead towards healing, Lord, as we become aware. Lord, we as a church often speak of, of health in terms of how we relate to each other and how our church functions. May this be another quality of our health as a church, that we will be vigilant to see where hurt is happening and inappropriate control is happening and be agents of the love and the power of the transforming work of Christ. Amen.